Coming up this hour, we're joined by Sean Palmer, but for this first segment, a very special mystery guest. You're listening to The Common Good. Everyone, welcome to the Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins. Normally joined by Brian Fromm. He is out, hopefully just for today and today only. He'll be back on Monday. But in his absence, we have a whole slew of very special guests. And to kick off today's show, quite possibly, not quite possibly, without without any doubt, the most specialist of guests, my lovely wife, Katie. How are you? I've been waiting for my invitation to the show. I'm, I, I'm here. I've arrived. I think you've been on the show, haven't you? I, I just showed up in my memories. It was uh, back when we could actually go to the studio. <laughs> I also, a long, long time ago. Well, in, in, uh, in an attempt to actually convince you to do this, I have taken our son. So we're in the basement <laughs> and you're upstairs. Do you want to say hi, Red? Say hi. Say hi. Nope. He's not going to say hi, but I... I would be remiss not to mention uh, Katie is also the founder of Common Mission Women. You can learn more at commonmissionwomen.com. And uh, why don't you tell people briefly, Katie, about Common Mission Women before we get into uh, other topics? Yeah, so it's uh, my own business. I started uh, October 2019, and I do all handmade goods. So mostly working with jewelry, but also starting to get into clothing and bags and some other collaborative projects. But uh, 20% of all our proceeds go to women living in poverty and or homelessness in the Chicagoland area. So our whole mission is made locally to serve locally. So ethically made um, goods that give back. And I know no one cares about my opinion regarding jewelry, but personally, <laughs> I think I'll just say it to you directly. I think what you do is Awesome. I think it's not only like a great mission, but it's like a really beautiful, wonderful product. And I just, I mean, a lot of people obviously agree with that. Plus, you're now featured in a uh, a local store, and one of them is having a, like a grand opening tonight, right? Or some kind of event? Yeah, we're moving into our second location, Wickwood House, which is home to at least 40 that I know of local small businesses that are mo- mostly female run. So it's like a female powerhouse over there. And yeah, it's really fun to be part of. It's a great collaborative and empowering community of women. And so yeah, we're opening our second location in Wheaton tonight. And and where where's the first location at? In Aurora. So Wickwood House. How do you Wickwood spell House? You're gonna put me on the spot. W Y C K W O O D Wickwood and then House H O U S E. Just Wickwood like house. You think it was spelled House. <laughs> I'm hearing another baby crying upstairs. Are we about to have another baby? We're about to have two conscious toddlers here on the common good. Redmond just ran out of the room, so who knows where he's going? This is this is going to go downhill real fast. (laughs) Should I get him? I think you're fine. It's it's okay. Uh, You're screaming in the background. (laughs) We've definitely, I think, with Brian so far, we've had dogs barking. He was getting a new roof put on one show a couple weeks ago. Uh, Yep, I hear that now. What's extra funny is Owen. We'll bring him Owen's, into this. Owen's room is right above where I'm recording too, so this you're going to get him in stereo. Um, all right, babe. One of the things I want to ask you about: plenty of people know that we just went on this trip as a family, but people are always asking us about like parenting during a pandemic, and I'm always like, man, you got you got to talk to my wife because I, I think we are not the experts, people. <laughs> you're way more the expert than I am, though. I'd love to. Know, what has that been like for you trying to parent two young toddlers 
during a pandemic? All I can say is that my community of fellow mamas has been essential, like being intentional about being plugged in with other people, even though you have to do it mostly virtually right now. Right. Has been so helpful. Just that constant reminder of you're not alone. Ideas of momming in a pandemic, which is all something we're, we've been navigating. We're all trying to figure it out and uh, we're not alone in that. So that's been my most helpful piece, I think. And then just trying to stay positive, trying to think of ways for like preparing ourselves for winter. My my favorite joke right now is winter is coming. (laughs) Um, (laughs) We must prepare. And now they're both in here with me. We have, I have both boys. Well, I, now we have like on-air evidence that they both love you more. And I can't blame them, to be honest. They flock to me. <laughs> they do kind of flock to you. It is it is pretty remarkable to see. Uh, babe, and I, I say this to you, I mean, in private, obviously, but just to say it publicly, like w- one of the things that I so love and I've heard, I think in all of your answers so far is like your heart for women, where like whether it's common mission women, which we haven't even talked about. So you have the, the jewelry stuff, but even before that you were using the website to like feature other women doing good things in the world. Like your heartbeat for like platforming and leveraging. Hi red. Hi buddy. <laughs> he's calling his big brother baby right now. So of course he is. that's going to go well. Yeah. He just turned three yesterday and he's still a baby, but like mm-hmm. from the very beginnings of that, it feels like your heart has always been to how, how can I come alongside women and support women? I just feel like you're always championing women and then like watching you become a mom has just been so remarkable. And now you're talking about like your mom group. I want to give you like a chance. I know we only got a couple of minutes left, but like, would you just speak to some of the, some of the women who are listening who are maybe feeling isolated or overwhelmed or feeling like, I don't know what I'm doing. Like, could you just speak some encouragement to them? I think the passion of my heart is for women to know that one, their story matters, but two, they're not alone. And three, that, that they're enough. That's been such a a good reminder this year for me that my friends and I have shared with one another that you're enough in whatever season you're in. Um, So I guess those would be my encouragements. And also that God has the, the, the possibility to use you um, not just in small ways, but in big leadership ways. And, that's why I'm passionate about creating space for women to be known and their stories to be known and for them to step into exactly who they were created to be. That's so good. Thanks for always kind of being kind of that voice, that beacon, babe. I've seen you do it like on the show and with your business and in like big public ways, but I've also, I feel real blessed to see the ways that you do this in really small ways and like one-on-one ways and, and private ways and ways that people might not ever, ever know about. And, uh, <laughs> Hi, buddy. Can they hear me? Can they- <laughs> up here, so. <laughs> All right. I'll be up in a second, buddy. Uh, babe, with like the, the 40 seconds or so that we have left, uh, would you just hit everyone up with like websites, uh, Instagram, all of that, and then maybe also the, uh, the website to the ministry that you partner with as well? Yeah. So I'm partnered with my own mom's ministry, which has been an awesome way to just directly care for the women that we serve. And then I'm on Instagram at common mission women and my website's also www.commonmissionwomen.com. Um, and you can link to that through my Instagram. I'm on Facebook, same name. 
but yeah, that's, I'm mostly on Instagram. Let's be real. It's my, that's been my focus. I feel like I've connected with so many amazing women on there and been able to build relationships even with women. I don't know. So did you, I love did you come downstairs. Are you down I, here right now? I'm down here. <laughs> You're about to enter. This is about to like create a, a rip in the space time continuum. You want to come talk on this microphone? I'm chasing a toddler. Okay. Yep. I have the other one now. All right. That's probably a good time for us to end. Anyway, Babe, I love you. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm so grateful for all the work that you do and the ways that you empower women and give back. And uh, just to say it out loud, you're an inspiration to me. I love all that you do. Uh, for you guys who are listening, I cannot encourage you enough. Go to the website, commonmissionwomen.com. You'll be glad that you did. Uh, thanks for coming on last minute, babe. Appreciate it. Thanks, babe. Love you. <laughs> I love you too. Coming up next, uh, you're not going to miss it. Sean Palmer. He's an author and a pastor and a coach and uh, just an all-around great guy. That's coming up next for the rest of the hour here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope you're like. Thursday, I don't care about you. It's Friday, I'm in love. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, normally joined by Brian Fromm. He is out just for today, but fret not. He'll be back on Monday, or so we're told. And uh, I'm absolutely thrilled to have, not just for one, but two segments, the one and only Sean Palmer. Welcome to the show, sir. Oh, thanks for having me, Ian. I am glad to be here. Man, well, that might be premature. You might want to wait till the end of the conversation, <laughs> but who who knows? Fing, fingers crossed. For uh, for people who don't so know, so far I'm glad to be here. <laughs> I appreciate that. Would you just take a minute or two and uh, introduce yourself to our audience? Yeah, so uh, my name is Sean Palmer. I'm a teaching pastor at Ecclesia Houston, down in Houston, Texas. Um, an author, uh, speaker, speaking coach. Um, I work with local and city governments as well, doing some consulting with them and father of two delightful teenage daughters. <laughs> so, so how do you find time to sleep with all of the things that you do? Like, is does sleep go I, out the window? <laughs> I don't sleep is part of the, is part of the problem. I sleep I, actually during COVID during quarantine, I've done really well, but usually I sleep about four hours a night. Um, and a lot of that stuff kind of overlaps and I can do one thing here and one thing there, but I'm really kind of a, a pretty scheduled person. That's, that's how most of it gets done. It's, uh, just keeping a really firm schedule and have a gracious family. I love that. I, I am also kind of selfishly interested because I feel like you and I might be wired similarly in more ways than one. In fact, we're going to talk about your Enneagram book a little bit later because you and I are the same Enneagram number, but I also for a long time, for as long as I can remember, have had that sort of like. I don't want to call it schizophrenic, but like all of the things that you just listed, I imagine to a certain kind of person, they might be hearing that thinking, how, how does this guy even have interest or passion or fuel in the tank for so many different types of things? Like, where do you think that comes from? Like this sort of kaleidoscope interest in a lot of different types of things. Well, I think it's actually associated with my Enneagram number, something my wife and I talk about a lot of the time. And I just had a great lunch with a friend of mine who's in my small group here at church. He's also at three. And threes just generally are interested in lots of different things. Like, so there's a downside of that that says Enneagram three is interested in a lot of different things. So they'll know how to be with different people, but there's an upside to it that says like, I'm genuinely interested in uh, things that I'm not trained for. Like I'm really interested in how um, biology works. I'm interested in how radio shows work. I'm interested in all sorts mm. of things. And so I will chase a rabbit for a long time and go down a deep hole like for me right now, um, it's wine. I also do photography. Um, 
and, and I just got, I'll get into one of those things for a long time, and, but they always stay with me. Like I keep doing them. Um, and that's just sort of the way I'm, I, I find people in the world endlessly fascinating. And I want to know what other people know. And that fuels a lot of that energy. I just get really passionate about something and kind of root around in it for a long time um, until something else comes along. But I, I have a good track record of not just hopping from one thing to another, but actually staying in that world and learning and participating more and more. Yeah, it's so interesting. One of the things Brian will often refer to me as like the quote unquote brain science guy, which I it's not a title I deserve because I don't actually know anything. I'm just really interested in it. In fact, we have uh, Dr. Jim Wilder on later in the show, who's a, a neurotheologian. And that like I just geek out on that stuff, but I don't know why. Like I'm not good at studying science or any of that. And you, you said something I want to I want to drill down on a little bit because you talked about kind of the motivation behind uh, a three's desire to learn these different things. You know, I, I heard, I think it was Suzanne Stabile's daughter often refer to the three as the, like the chameleon. And mm -hmm. I'm curious, do you, do you, do you see that kind of chameleon nature in, in threes? I do. And it's for, especially in very young or in immature moments or unhealthy moments, there's a lot of chameleon where I'm just trying to be this, to get through this. So like a chameleon changes shape, right? for survival in the moment. And, and that's a little bit different than being like, like you said, being really interested in brain science, where it's like, I'm just kind of find that really fascinating. And I'm not, that's actually a place where three are able to express some authenticity. Like I'm interested in this thing for the thing itself, and I'm not going to be able to do anything with it eventually. But yeah, the chameleon, the image making, the shape shifting is really um, on the top level on the surface for a lot of Enneagram threes. I think matter of fact, that's how most people experience Enneagram threes. But so much of that is about the deep desire to be accepted, to be included, to be part of the group, um, and also to not stand out as part of the group. So the image that's used oftentimes is like, if a three gets into fitness, um, then they'll go before they've done two workouts, they'll go to the store and they'll get the right shoes and the right clothes and all that to kind of look the part. And, and while that's true, um, it's also how threes um, integrate into the community. Uh, this is what that community does. And you can do that very better for healthy and unhealthy reasons. Hmm. See, I remember listening to a, a lecture that uh, Father Richard Rohr had given, and he preempted a statement by saying, um, every three that I've told what I'm about to tell you has cried once I've told them. And I'm listening to it while I'm driving. And I'm like, I'm not going to cry. And then he said it. And I had to like pull over because I was weeping. Like it was just one of those. And kind of what he was driving at was this notion. He said it way more eloquently than I can remember, but it was, it was wanting to speak value into a three into the kind of person that has bought the lie that they are only as valuable as the work they can produce. Is that, is that something that you've noticed uh, as a as central component of threes feeling like, well, I'm, I only, I'm only worth as much as I can accomplish. Right. And that's one of the central lies that threes believe is that my worth is inherently tied up to what I produce and what I accomplish. Uh, and mm -hmm. so when I'm not accomplishing what I'm not producing or when I'm failing, um, then I am worthless. And, and that's a, that's a thing for Enneagram threes that we feel very deeply and have to push against all the time, that there is worth there, even when you don't produce. Um, and like the image that we want to project to the world is that I am successful. I'm competent. I'm effective. I am accomplished. 
um, and that we believe we're only good if we do something valuable. And when you believe you're only good if you do something valuable, when you do something that others find not valuable at all, then you feel worthless. Right, right. And and this will probably spill over into the next segment. But with the, the couple of minutes that we have left in this segment, what, what are some ways to counteract that? Because it's, I think it's one thing to identify the lie and to kind of stare it in the face and say, OK, I don't I don't think that that's theologically, ontologically true. But how, how do you like formationally begin to like step away from that? Well, there's nothing that's going to be as helpful and good for an Enneagram 3 as, as failure and public failure if you can get it. Um, and you can't orchestrate mm-hmm. failure, but it's going to be your greatest teacher. But you also need wow. people around you who are going to speak truth to you. So a good friend of mine, we were at lunch just several months ago, and he said if he had a word for Enneagram 3s, he would say um, unnecessary. Like to just embrace the word unnecessary. That's so much of what we do, how we arrange ourselves, organize ourselves in the world, what we project to the world, like it's just unnecessary that we are already loved. But it's one of those things. It, it is the very thing, Ian, that um, threes have a hardest time believing. And someone can tell us that till they're blue in the face, till they're blue in the face. And if we're not prepared for it, then we just won't believe it. The same way if you were telling an, an Enneagram 8 that you will not be betrayed, they might believe that on the surface, but it's so deeply integrated into who we are that we have difficult, difficult time actually believing it until we spend a lot of time with a lot of people doing a lot of work to get past it. Gosh, I wish I had like another two hours with you. I have so many follow-up questions. Thankfully, uh, you're going to stick around at least for one more segment. And that other voice you're hearing, by the way, is Sean Palmer. He's the teaching pastor at Ecclesia Houston. He's also an author and a coach and all-around good guy. And uh, he's going to stick around for one more segment here on The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey friends, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, normally joined by Brian Fromm. He's out for today, but he will be back on Monday. And I'm delighted that we're joined for another segment. Sean Palmer, he is the teaching pastor at Ecclesia Houston. He also has written a bunch of books, which we're going to talk about in a second. He also does more than most people I know, to be honest. The four-hour sleep thing makes a lot of sense. But before we kind of continue this conversation, I would love for you just to hit us up with where can people go to learn more? Your church's website, your website, books, Twitter, Instagram, any any of that. Yeah, the easiest place to find me is on Twitter, just at Sean Palmer, S-E-A-N-P-A-L-M-E-R. And Instagram is at Sean Isaac Palmer, I-S-A-A-C-P-A-L-M-E-R. So if you find at Sean Palmer on Twitter, the link tree is there in the bio. You'll find everything else, the Facebook page and, and all that good stuff. That's the easiest place to go. That's great, man. And then the most recent Enneagram book that we've just been talking about, just so people know, what, what is what is that called? So it's 40 Days on Being a Three. It's a daily reader for people who know the Enneagram, who are Enneagram threes, who know and love an Enneagram three. Hey, people ask me, like, who the book is for? Is it just for threes? And, and it is, but um, on either side of three, you've got twos and fours. So if you want to understand your wing, if you've got a three wing at a four or two, this is really helpful for that. If you are a six or nine, understanding the numbers you go to and integration or disintegration, stress and security, whatever uh, language you want to use for that, it's really helpful. But probably the most helpful out of all those people um, is if you have a Enneagram three in your life that is... Um, important to you to know how they see and understand the world, what their experience like. So if you're married to a three, you're in close business relationships, you have children who identify as a three, 
Um, it, it, it's all of those. Um, or if you run a business, right, you've got three that you employ. Um, I, I got a message yesterday from a business coach and he says, he told me like, I'm a nine. Um, and so I wanted to read your book, but I have so many threes that I coach. And this has been the best tool that I've read wow. for the threes that I coach. That's great. And I, I'm kind of putting you on the spot here, but like even Brian, when we've talked about Enneagram, you know, say, wow, I haven't taken the quiz yet. I don't know what I am. And I'm like, I don't think, I don't think you're encouraged to just like take a quiz. Do you have like recommended places for people to go who are hearing you talk about integration, disintegration three? They're like, I don't even know what I am or anyone I work with or the person <laughs> I'm married to. Like yeah. you're a bit of an authority. Where, where would you send people? Um, there, there are a couple of different things. So um, I think I'm not a big fan of the test um, online test because the Enneagram is fundamentally about motivation and not behavior. And most tests ask you about behavior. Um, so the best place to go for me is to read um, Suzanne Stabile and Ian Cron's book, The Road, The Road Back to You. It's a short little book. The chapters are broken up in a really easy way. And to kind of read through that uh, is pretty, it's pretty simple. But if you want to take a test, because I know not um, everyone can um, invest the time in reading a book, and, they, and a lot of folks just want a uh, quick and easy thing. I think it's the IE9 um, website, okay. and um, it may be EI9 um, or Integrative 9, I think is the full name. If you just type in Integrative 9, um, Ian's worked on that project some, and it's probably one of the better tools. But I would tell everyone, if you take a test, Look at that as a starting point and then uh, hop into something a little right. bit more deeply to confirm that because a lot of folks come out and just where they are in life, they will say, I took a test and I came out as a two, right? And they may find out later that they were just in a time of stress. And so they were demonstrating behaviors of a two, but they're actually a different number. Right. Um, so then go to one of the books um, for Christians, Richard Rohr's The Enneagram and Christian Perspective is a place where a lot of people start. Helen Palmer's work, um, Claudio Naranjo's work. There's so, so many um, places to go from that point. So integrative9.com. Yeah, and I, I think for me, like we, 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 we did a workshop as a staff team where the spouses were invited. And uh, what I did was count the, the number of times my wife kicked my chair as they unpacked each number. <laughs> Sort of like, oh, she probably knows and sees something I I don't know or see. So, uh, yeah, a lot of a lot of that kind of communal experience, at least in my experience, has been incredibly helpful. You've also written a number of other books, and I want to ask you about one in particular from a couple of years ago called "Unarmed Empire: In Search of Beloved Community." I've been really interested in this last year about this word community and the ways we understand and misunderstand it. And, you know, you wrote this, you know, obviously before a pandemic, but I'd, I'd love to know a little more about the book and, and how has maybe your perspective on some of that shifted in this last year of a pandemic. Yeah. So Unarmed Empire was written really to um, a church that in my view had kind of shifted from its primary and central role as to be God's presence on earth. And so I was envisioning, my daughters were a little bit younger than they are now. I think I started that project maybe seven years ago. And I said, what would the church look like that I would want for my daughters? And what I found was the church that I wanted for my daughters was the one that Paul originally intended and wrote about in the New Testament um, in terms of their posture toward the world, in terms as the church, as a community of mm. healing and wholeness and belonging. So all those things are happening in um, the New Testament. And that's the church that Paul feels commissioned by God to help bring to life. 
And so instead of a church that was dominated by power and authority who wanted to be um, aligned with a political party or wanted to have some sort of governmental top-down power, what about the church that um, we see in the first century and in the New Testament? And that church is fundamentally like Jesus in Luke 10 sends out his disciples, and they are completely vulnerable and dependent upon the hospitality of the world. And so then what does that say? then about race relationships or what does it say about um, communities that the church uh, has not had a um, has not had a a healing presence in regardless of what you think that healing presence might produce so like lgbt um, community um, in in racial racially tense times how do we handle the world as it is from a church that enters the world as jesus entered the world dependent upon the hospitality of the world, vulnerable to the realities of the world, and still speak in ways that are both deeply loving, deeply healing, and um, deeply mission-centered and bringing people into a full relationship with God. Man, I, again, I have like five follow-up questions, but I know we don't have time for it. I, what are some ways that you think people, individuals, or church communities, or leaders who are listening can take strides toward that? Because I, I feel like hospitality, the word hospitality is having a moment right now, but it feels like historically, mm-hmm. at least in my experience, hospitality in the church was like where we put the cookies and tea. Like that was yeah. the extent of our understanding. And it's it's so much more like robust and beautiful and and, and radical than that. But uh, yeah, do you have any suggestions for like how people can actually inch toward that a little bit on like what you're talking about? Uh, and some of that has to do exactly what you're saying about a misunderstanding about what hospitality is. What we talk about in church when we say hospitality, what we have meant historically is hosting. But hospitality is radical openness to the other. So churches in their own context have to figure out who the other is to our community and how are we open to them. That our church doesn't belong to us. Our church fundamentally belongs to the community that we're sitting here to serve. And that if we were to go away, that there would be a real loss for our community. Um, So that's part of it. And then those things, churches are really good. Me and you and others like us, we, we get paid for talking, but what churches need to do is to begin to formulate practices of listening. And there are spiritual practices for that, but there are also communal practices for that. And I think if you would to talk, if you were to talk to people who are fundamentally at odds with the American Christian church, one of the things that they wouldn't say, but behind everything that they do say is that we are people who do not listen. Yeah. Right. I remember reading for the first time years ago, Paul Tillich said something like the first duty of love is to listen and feeling so deeply convicted that that was not an area of strength for me at all. Right. Sean, thank you so much, man, for taking the time to be with us on the show today. I really, really appreciate it. I enjoyed it. Thanks for having it's our me. pleasure. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. And this might be a common good first. We already said au revoir to Sean, took a break. I was like, man, I feel like we got more to talk about. And Sean has very graciously agreed, without any roadmap at all, by the way, to do one more segment with us. So we, we're going to kind of put him in the hot seat here and just <laughs> just kind of rapid fire hit him with some stuff that I've just been wanting to ask you about in general and we don't we don't have to delve too deeply, Sean, but I would love to get sort of your like unfiltered, unedited thoughts on this election season right now. Where Where's your head? Where's your heart? Where's your soul in all of this? 
Oh, wow. This has been a hard one for a lot of people. I think because so many things are going on and we're in the middle of COVID. So every person is under stress that they've never been under before. And so when you're under stress, um, you know, just to take double back to our Enneagram conversation, for people who know the Enneagram well, the first thing you do when you're in stress is what we would say double down on your number. You would just do more of what you did to get here in the first place, thinking that would solve it. Um, and so right. people um, are already dis decentered from their normal routine. We're distanced from people already. So I think maybe social media has ratcheted up a couple of levels more so than we're even used to um, in this time around because we don't sit around table with people. We're not at the office talking about the issues of the day with people who might have divergent opinions of us. So it's gotten much more caustic. And I think there are some powers and principalities um, located actually in individuals and organizations that are are deliberately beefing up the tension and ratcheting up the tension. I'm more, I'm as worried about the election as I am what comes after the election in terms of what happens between November 4th and January 20th when uh, the inauguration happens. And so what I'm saying is a lot of people who are very um, disassociated with other people going deeper into themselves where there are no resources, right? Um, and we are all, so many people are leaving or disassociated with the things that have been very helpful for them. Folks who are not engaged in their local churches because their churches are meeting online or they're meeting at churches and it's a 25% capacity and everybody's like, all of that is causing us to behave in ways that are unlike what we would normally behave, but it's also revealing to us that we're just not spiritually formed in the same ways that we thought that we were and that we haven't, we aren't largely a people who have been enmeshed in spiritual practices, practices that are designed to cultivate and to help us and um, strengthen us in times of great stress. So I think when this is over and churches return to whatever the new normal is going to be, we have a lot of work ahead of us in um, reorienting people do something that none of us have ever been and done before. Um, and so my prayer is that we, we make it through and that we make it through in some semblance of wholeness um, because we are a fracturing society. And that's not, we're seeing it on the political level, but we're seeing it on a political level because it's happening on a spiritual and social and emotional level. That's really good. One of the weird things about being a pastor first and then having this show is that one of the criticisms that Brian and I have gotten a number of times, particularly this last year, whenever we talk about politics or race or violence or, or any of that, sometimes the pushback is, aren't you guys pastors? Why don't, why don't you just talk about spiritual things? Why don't you stay in that realm? Don't bring racial justice. Don't bring politics into this. Just talk about salvation and you know kind of the disembodied evacuation of heaven when we die like what what do you say to the person who like honestly feels that way well my first response when i hear that is to apologize to them um hmm. because somewhere along the line i have given them the i have given them the impression that there are realms of their life that the spiritual and the sacred don't touch and that you can in some neat and clean way keep those two things separate. And that's just not the case. Um, and then I would say to them, is that because um, you really believe, I asked, do you really believe that these things are separate or do you not want your, whether it's political or sexual or social, whatever the question is about, or is it more to the fact that you don't want 
Jesus to address these other things. Um, hmm. Because my job, um, what I've been called to, is to uh, interpret how Jesus touches all of these aspects of human existence and life. And when someone suggests, hey, just talk about that thing, um, that thing has a direct effect on this other thing. And let's talk about why it is that it's more satisfying to you emotionally to keep those things separate. And I am sorry that I've done a poor job in not helping you understand that they are not separate. That's so interesting. Do you think that people actually find it more satisfying or is it more like for some, it's just the, it's the categories they've been handed and they don't even know that there's another option? Um, I think that's possible. And I, and I do think we've done a poor job. Like I mentioned earlier in a segment that I've done some work with like local city governments. What I find really interesting in that, in that is when I talk to city managers and mayors, so many of these people are Christian people are people of faith and they will have questions about handling something in their sphere in the work world in their city government, that there is a direct correlation or teaching from the life and ministry of Jesus to address. And nowhere did it occur to them to apply what happened in the good Samaritan to the situation that there, the the principle doesn't seem to carry over. And I think as church leaders, we really do need to reevaluate what we have taught, what we have not taught, how we have not taught it or taught it, because folks are not able to, as, as much as we think they are when they go to their jobs every day, they're not making the connections that we think that they're making. And um, there's, there's a failure in that that we really need to address. I think some of it is legitimate ignorance. I think some of it is an artificial wall that um, folks have put up between um, the sacred and the um, secular. Um, but we've got to do something to, to help people make that better. Yeah, I feel like when I was first cutting my teeth in ministry, you know, one of the one of the big kind of lightning rod topics was money, right? And people would say, "Why are we talking about money? Shouldn't we talk about spiritual things?" And I'm like, "Well, Jesus seems to think he spent a quarter of his earthly ministry talking about what we do with our stuff." You know, he says, "If, if you want to know where your heart is, like follow your treasure." Like that's there's a correlation there, and it feels like what you're just saying. I think connects so well to what you're saying about threes as well, because sometimes as a teacher, as a preacher, you know, we think everyone just walked away from that sermon and their life has been totally changed and they're totally going to integrate everything we just talked about. And what you're saying, and I think you're right, is that that's not always true. So how, how can churches better walk alongside people to, to not disintegrate, to not see this divide between the sacred and the, and the secular to, to let, you know, we had Rich Velotis on a couple of weeks ago talking about the deeply formed mm-hmm. life. Like how do we, how do we help people better enter into that? Well, I think there are a lot of modalities of spiritual formation that we need to be better at integrating into church life and making normative in church life as a communicator or some primary ministry is speaking. Um, one of the things that mm-hmm. I have to do a better job at is I, I was trained to be able to say something without saying something and to not say mm-hmm. something and say something at the same time. and. What that does is like it's made me really clever <laughs> as a communicator. So I can say, yeah, we talked about that. Um, but now I've got to work on being much clearer. Um, you know, a, a good friend of mine, John Allen Turner, says, look, um, um, when it comes to a when it comes to a disagreement, the winner in those disagreements isn't the person who's most clever. It's the person who's most clear. And oh, um, 
I think we've got to be more clear about, and this comes in forms of illustrations and concretizations, other ways we could do that in kind of a charismatic moment in, in sermon delivery. So like, this is how this legitimately applies, but not to just reduce it to this sort of three um, points that are all, you know, all begins with a P or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. And I think uh, that's one of the places where I've just got to do better. And we've also got to remember, and th- I say this as a preacher, right? that um, discipleship is not done in a worship gathering. Like we've got to, we've got to do much better um, a job at getting people out of pews and into circles and life on life, making failure easy and normal to express in the spiritual life, communities of redemption and grace um, where folks can sit around uh, with a, group of trusted people and say, this is what's actually going on. And we're going to work our way through it. Mm-hmm. Instead of doing this, I went to five different Bible studies and I know kind of all the stock Jesus answers to everything. Sean, that's incredibly helpful, man. And just to say it out loud, I'm super grateful for, for you and your voice, your leadership. You're one of my favorite followers on social media. Thank you so much for not only being generous with your time, but also giving us an additional segment without any prior warning whatsoever. Thanks so much for doing that, man. <laughs> Well, thanks for having me. This has been a ton of fun and uh, blessings on you and your ministry and all of those listening to us now. I hope you have yeah. a, a great, great weekend. Likewise, brother. We'd love to have you back on sometime. Anytime. All right. Love it, man. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Coming up this hour, we have Hannah Granowski and Jim Wilder in the same hour. You're not going to want to miss it. That's coming up next here on The Common Good. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, normally joined by the wonderful Brian Fromm. He is out for the day, but fret not, friends. He shall return on Monday, or, or so we're told. Who knows? Uh, but we are in lieu of Brian we have a number of really wonderful special guests in the studio, and I'm so thrilled to have back to the show for maybe the third or the fourth time, our <laughs> friend Hannah Granowski. Welcome back to the show, friend. Thank you. It feels like coming back to family, you know? It's oh. like a family reunion every single time. I love it. <laughs> See, you know, you know just what to say. That is really kind of our hope that the show over time would feel like family, yeah. and uh, I appreciate you saying that. Just, just that. so that we are all clear, would you just take a moment and introduce yourself again to our audience? Absolutely. Um, well, first of all, um, I am a woman that loves adventure, that loves all things exciting and new and fresh. And so um, a lot of times you'll see me traveling and going new places and meeting new people. And that is truly who I am at my core. Um, but mm. even more than that, I am a child of God. I am a passionate follower of Jesus. I always say not because I have to, but because I want to, because I really Mm. love who Jesus Christ actually is. Um, I'm a leader. I'm a CEO and founder of a nonprofit called Generation Distinct. I'm an author, speaker, podcast host. I am um, a friend to many. I am a uh, passionate believer 
um, that there are voices all over this world um, that deserve to have their stories told. Um, I'm a daughter. I'm a sister. I'm dating an amazing guy named Aaron. And um, I'm, I'm just loving life in the best city in the world, which is Chicago. Is it weird that I can actually like I can hear that you're smiling right now talking about these people in your life? Is uh, that accurate? Yeah, a hundred percent. I'm I'm <laughs> I'm usually smiling when I talk about my people. That's for sure. That is actually true. Okay, so you you started this organization called Generation Distinct. Yes. And then wrote a book called Generation Distinct. I did. Now you have a podcast also <laughs> called uh, Tip of My Tongue Generation Distinct, right? So <laughs> yeah, like, hard to remember, the, right? This is, and that's not always how it works. Sometimes people are like oh, I have this. I have a company over here, but then I have this like yeah. book that's something different in this. You have this like singular focus, hmm. which I find so refreshing because that's not often, it's just not often the case. Hmm. Uh, why are you so passionate about the work that is Generation Distinct? You know, it's it's interesting because this whole vision was given to me when I was 16. And I've, I've shared the story on here before, so I don't want to go totally into it. But the vision that was given as a 16-year-old is still the vision that drives me to this day, and it's simply this, it's that when I look around at this generation, at my generation, I'm 25, so it's it's me, my peers, this generation, man, I see this desire for things to change. Mm-hmm. I, I, I hear the longing in their voices for something to be different in our world. I, I, I sense this desire to be a part of building a better kind of future. And every single day, I also hear the very same three or a few words. I just don't know where to start. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and so every single day, I'm reminded why this matters that, that what Generation Sync does equipping young leaders to discover the wrong they were born to make right and experience what Jesus really is matters so much, not just because it's fun, not just because, you know, a, a couple people might have a, a better life because they found this strategy. No, it matters because I believe this is something God wants to do in this generation, mm. that God wants to call this generation, not just to care about injustice, not just to care about making wrong things right, not just to care about unity, but to actually work for it. And mm. if I get to be a part of equipping young leaders to do that, it, it's so worth it. I, I just had one of my team members uh, first of all, the Generation Sync staff are, are the most incredible humans on this planet. And so um, you all need to know who they are, too. Um, but I had one of my staff members message our entire staff a couple days ago, and he shared a testimony that one of our participants had shared with him. And, and he just said, team, you all have to hear this to be reminded of why we do what we do. And it was this young woman that I don't even know who she is, but my team had had directly invested in her in our program. And she said, before Generation Synced, I'd walked away from Jesus because I care about injustice. I care about changing the world. And I didn't think Jesus wanted me to have anything to do with that. But through going through this program, I realized that Jesus cares more about justice than I do. And if that's who he is, I want to follow him too. Wow. And that was why we do what we do. And that's what that's what makes me so excited about it and why I really am so devoted to this vision. I love that. Well, and I and I had the pleasure not to like name drop you, I guess, uh, <laughs> but of being invited to your book launch and at the yeah. end of the entire gathering, which was so cool, by the way. I loved the format and I, I feel mm-hmm. like you did a you just did a great job of like honoring the team, hmm, you know, I think thanks. a lot of times when you're launching a book, it's like, Hey, let me tell you about me. I just felt <laughs> like you were constantly pointing, not just to Jesus, but to the other people that 
that make mm-hmm. it what it is. Wow. And at the end, you read, I'm holding it right now. The end of your book is called The Charge, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think you naturally kind of have like jet fuel in your veins anyway. <laughs> but it was like this, like, holy cow. Like, people were like amped. Like, you could tell they were like ready to, you know, jump through a brick wall <laughs> for for the cause. And at the beginning wow. of that chapter, you include a, a Rosa Parks quote, yeah. which I've loved for years. You said, I had mm-hmm. no idea that history was being made. I was just tired of giving up. Yeah. Do, do you find that like, I mean, we've had a weird year, right? <laughs> do you find that people are are closer to giving up than they have been in a while or, or is the opposite true? Are people like, you know what, now more than ever, we got, we have to work for justice and reconciliation and righteousness. Where, where do, what are you seeing? Yeah, I see both honestly, but I don't see anyone yeah. in the middle really. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think that the value of this is that it's really drawn some lines in the sand and people are forced to choose. Am I going to give up or am I going to step up? Right. Hmm. And and I think that's what Rosa Parks was saying is everybody has to come to this moment where they decide. And with the with the crisis, with the injustice, with the pain, with the trauma of 2020, people have been forced to choose. And the sad thing is that sometimes people have chosen chosen to give up. And and there are shocking rates of depression and suicide right now and and just yeah. loneliness and isolation. And it's devastating. And at the same time, there has been a shocking number of people who have chosen to step up. And again, not everyone's going to agree on how to step up and that's okay, right? We don't all have to agree on that, but we can all acknowledge that it's beautiful to see people trying to see people saying, I want to be a part of changing. I'm not sure if I want to do it right, but I want to step up and I want to try and I want to see what could I do to make wrong things right in the world. So I think 2020 is really, yeah, just put this line in the sand and force just to say, am I going to step up or or am I going to you know, give up? But there's mm. really no no place in the middle anymore. And I mm. think that's a really good thing. Yeah, and I feel like a lot of what you know I've heard throughout my adult life is as you get to know people, a lot of times people have a very specific person they can point to that like just lit a fire in them. Like I had an English teacher that, you know, Hmm. just lit a passion for words or I had a, an internship that I did and I got to partner with this department or whatever it is. Hmm. And for you to, I just love the mission of like discover the wrong you're born to make right, which means sometimes people are coming to you and your team saying, I actually don't know what wrong I want to make right yet. How do you help people discover that? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it is honestly truly discovering the the parts of your story that have always been there, but maybe you just didn't see. And I even have a part of the book where I say, you know, this vision, it's not about taking you out of your life. It's about helping you open your eyes and see the passion that has always been right there waiting for you to uncover it. And so in Generation Sync, we have this four-step online journey that young leaders can go through to really build their own custom world change strategy for how they were uniquely born to change the world. And in step two, that's our form of coaching program. That's where it really gets intense. That's where rubber meets the road and you go deep. And the first eight weeks of that program, you're just spending going back through your story, identifying the really important moments, the the life-changing moments, even some of the things that you do and don't like. You're, you're forced to go ask people about what they hear you talking about all the time and It's really about looking at the things that have always been in your life, always been your story, but maybe you've just become so used to them, so accustomed, you might not even notice that those are the very things God has asked you to make right in this world. 
That's so good. Our guest today is Hannah Granowski. She's an author, a speaker, and CEO of Generation Distinct, which, as we discussed, is not only an organization, it's a book and a podcast, and I highly recommend you check out all three. And she is kind enough to stick around for just one more segment with us here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is still Ian Simpkins. Brian Fromm is still gone, but he'll be back on Monday. But in his absence, we have just a slew, a smattering, if you will, of really wonderful special guests. And my friend Hannah Gronowski is both an author and a speaker, plus the CEO of Generation Distinct, which is a book, a podcast, an organization. (laughs) And I always feel like I leave our conversations feeling like Oh, yeah, I could go run through a brick wall, too. Like, I just came back from a vacation with toddlers. So, uh, you know, it's it's well appreciated. <laughs> and I think I you have that effect that. on a lot of people. I would love mm-hmm. to know, before we kind of continue the conversation, um, where can people go to learn more? What are some of the things that, that you're involved in right now? I know you got a couple of cohorts on the horizon. Just, yes. just hit us with all that information. Absolutely. Well, if anyone's hearing me talk about Generation Sync and they're a young adult or they're a parent of a young adult and they're thinking, wow, this sounds like a really interesting tool and an interesting experience. Um, We have cohorts that open every nine weeks. So we'll have one opening up again in just a few weeks where you can actually begin your own journey to discover the wrong you were born to make right. So you can go to generationsync.com and you can click start here. And there's a really easy way for you to get onboarded and sign up for that next cohort. And you can register now and it will welcome you in when that cohort begins. So highly encourage you Go check it out, generationsynced.com. Um, I'm also personally partnering with one of my favorite organizations called the Women Speakers Collective with Danielle Strickland. And I am speaking or I'm teaching a speaking cohort for next generation women. So if you're a young woman or you're, again, you're a parent of a young woman who is passionate to communicate, to speak, to preach, if you feel that calling on your life, but you don't know where to start, I'm going to be teaching a cohort opening up here pretty soon with the Women Speakers Collective. You can sign up for that at womenspeakerscollective.com. I love that. A buddy of mine just this morning, actually, he had posted online. There was a couple of, uh, he was making a list of like, people he was reading that were shaping him right now. Wow. He's like one, two, three. And then he paused. He's like, wait a minute, these are all men. Where, where, what are the women voices y'all are listening <laughs> wow. to? And by the wow. time I saw it, it was a list like 200 comments long of like, you need to be listening to this woman. You need to be buying yeah. her book, listen to this that's podcast. Cool. And I thought, man, I, that's just something that's really near and dear to my heart. So yeah. thank you specifically, I think for hmm. what you're doing in that regard, just to raise up, raise up young women, you know, to know that they have a voice and a role. And I just think, I just think that's needed now more than ever. And kind of in line with that, you'd mentioned in the first segment, part of what y'all do is to help us see the things that have been consistent in our story all along that maybe we were unaware of. Like I, I posted a a sermon clip years ago that a buddy (laughs) of mine, we were actually roommates in college. Um, This is, you know, now a decade or so later, he saw it and goes, (laughs) this is the same thing you've been preaching for the last 10 years. Just wow. And wow. I thought it was like so st- strangely comforting to have someone yes. that knows you well, identify like that's your message, man. Yes. That's what you've been saying. Even if you didn't know it, yes. but I often find people are trying to like almost distance themselves mm. from their past. And they're like, what's this, what's the new thing that God's calling me to. And it's, right. it sounds like what you're offering is probably in some ways counterintuitive. Can you talk to me a little bit more mm. about why it's important for us to really be mindful of like, the history and the story that we come from when looking Mm -hmm. to the future? Yes. You know, I think one of the things that I have found in my own pursuit of wanting to change the world 
is that it's really glamorous. It's really cool. It's really sexy to start a new thing, right? I mean, you can see everyone on social media. They're always, you know, posting something new and creating new pages and launching new initiatives. And, and that's really good. Like that's not a bad thing. Right. But so often the thing that's not glamorous is continuing to do the same thing day after day after day. But so often what changes the world is doing the same thing day after day after day after day. And that's not really popular in my generation, right? We love the excitement, the thrill of starting something new. But I think the value is when we look back in our stories to see the things God has already woven into our lives, into our stories, we recognize wow, maybe it's not just about trying to find the new thing. Maybe we're not just supposed to be on our knees asking God, what is the new thing? What is the new thing? Maybe he's like, hey, I already told you, but it's not fun anymore. So you're trying to move on. And and I think sometimes God wants to say, just do the thing I've already asked you to do, but do it really well. How can you do it better? How can you do it more effective? How can you do the same thing for an extended amount of time so you can actually see wrong things made right in the world? Because we all know, we can hand out a, 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 a sandwich to a homeless man and it might be a good moment, but it's not changing anyone's world. Like, let's just be mm-hmm. honest. When does it change the world? When we show up day after day after day in their life, when we start to help them re- rebuild their lives and we help them get a job, right? Like the, mm-hmm. the long obedience in the same direction, right? I think yes. that is not a Dallas Willard quote, maybe. I think um, it's Eugene Peterson, but Eugene yes. Eugene Peterson, yes, one it. of those really, really wise individuals. <laughs> And, and so when we do that, I think we actually see wrong things made right in the world. And again, I think that's a challenging um, vision, even for me, especially for our generation. You know, and I love what you said there, too. There's a, a verse that kind of smacked me across the face a couple months ago. Hmm. I think it's in John 14. And Jesus is talking about sending the Holy Spirit, the advocate, hmm. who will give you everything that you need and remind you of what you already know to be true. Wow. And I don't know why I'd never notice that part like That's exactly good. what you're saying so often this obsession with new and shiny and yeah. current and you know dare i say relevant i don't think any of those things are bad sure. but so often like jesus knew part of what the role of the holy spirit is going to be in your life is to remind you like deep in your soul yeah. of the stuff you already know but you got distracted wow. found, so you know good. what i mean and yep. i think that's part of what you guys do and and the the notion of like formation of long i was going to actually bring that up the long obedience mm-hmm. in the same direction like why do you think that's so important? And and maybe more pointedly, because you work so closely with young adults, what what is the general like temperature and pulse on young adults right now with this insane year that we've just had? <laughs> yeah. You know, it's interesting. I hear a lot of older leaders saying, you know, that they, they've lost a lot of hope in the next generation and we're all about our platforms and we're all about fame mm. and all of that. But and I'm not going to pretend that that's not true of some of us. That's definitely true. And, and there's roots of that for sure. But I get really excited and inspired. Um, there's, there's a community of young leaders that try and get together around the country in different retreats and areas just to try and be unified and be on the same page. Grant mm-hmm. Skeldon has been a big leader in, in gathering those individuals. And when I get around those leaders, and again, these are leaders from the ages of like 17 through 40 that all get together. And when I see those leaders worshiping 
on their knees in prayer talking about how we just long for people to know Jesus, how we say that we don't want just really cute sermons, that we want to be people that preach the gospel. When we're saying we want to return back to scripture and not just good tweets, when we mm-hmm. say we don't want to be people that just care about, um, you know, um, um, justice outside of Jesus, but justice as an expression of Jesus, I get so excited because I realize that this generation, they're fed up with people talking without doing anything about it. Yeah. And so what gets me excited is about when I, when I know and recognize that this generation, yeah, we have a lot to learn and we're not done, but I do know that, that, that we're kind of over depending on politics to solve our problems. Mm-hmm. We're kind of over depending on, celebrities to solve our problems and we want to roll up our sleeves and just do the work. And so Mm. if you're an older leader, I would encourage you pause before you post that next status or pause before you write off the next generation and just listen, ask Mm. questions. And maybe you might be inspired to hear that again, we're not going to wait to till the election that happens in just about a a week and a half here um, Mm. to see the fate of our country. No, we want to build it right now that's so good hannah we're we're out of time now but i'm gonna i'm gonna cheat a little bit because i would love i'd love for you just to take 30 seconds or so and speak to the person who's feeling discouraged they're feeling like Mm. they are running low on hope they don't see a light at the end of the tunnel it's been a heck of a year would you just take just 30 seconds or so and and speak some encouragement to that person Yes, absolutely. I want you to hear this, that you are not a last minute addition or forgotten element in this world. But I believe that when God created this world, there was a strategy he had in mind and you are an essential pivotal part of God's strategy to bring hope and redemption and love and justice into this world. So not only can you receive hope right now, but you can be a conduit of hope into this world. And so I am just speaking life into you over the, over the, (laughs) the, the, the microphone here. I am speaking inspiration into you and I am reminding you, it is not just that you are here, but you are here for a purpose to make wrong things right in this world, to partner with Jesus as he fights to bring redemption and hope into the world. So may hope infect you and may hope flow through you into a world that is desperately longing for what you have uniquely been given to bring to the world. That's right. That's a good word, friend. You're listening to author, speaker, and CEO of Generation Distinct, Hannah Gronowski. I cannot encourage you enough to go to generationdistinct.com to learn more. Hannah, it is always such a joy and a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for taking the time. It's such an honor, Ian. Thanks so much. It's my pleasure. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, normally joined by Brian Fromm. He is out just for today. He'll be back tomorrow. Not tomorrow. That's Saturday. He'll be back on Monday. If he's back tomorrow, he'll be all by himself. But in his absence, though, we have a number of really special guests. And welcoming back to the show, we have Dr. Jim Wilder. Welcome back to the show, sir. Thank you. It's great to be with you today. The the feeling is most certainly mutual. And we got so much good feedback from your last interview. I imagine plenty of people listening will remember you and who you are. But for those of, that don't, could you just take a moment and uh, introduce yourself to our audience? Sure. Well, you're one of the few shows that I know that 
really has an interest in neurotheology, how the mm -hmm. brain and Christianity match together. And uh, so that's basically my background. Um, I became a Christian as a child and found out, uh, you know, growing up in the church, my parents being missionaries, that, uh, you know, the things that we were taught didn't work as well as, I, as all of us thought they should, you know. Mm -hmm. So trying to believe harder and, uh, you know, be more spiritual got kind of discouraging. So along the way, uh, discovering how the brain actually learns to be human and changing um, you know, my re basic reactions was kind of a personal project. And uh, hmm. fortunately, I've been blessed to be able to do that as a career for about 40 years now. Wow. I, I remember the first time I learned of you and I saw the word neurotheologian and I was like, oh, I, I have to talk with this guy. And I don't know where that comes from, to be honest, but you, you alluded to it at the beginning there that it doesn't seem like a lot of Christians or Christian communities are all that interested in the connection between our brain and theology and doctrine. Why, why do you think that is? Well, somewhere back a century or so ago, uh, a pretty big fight broke out between science and Christianity. And so they've kind of been like nervous about each other, those two fields for a long time. Hmm. Uh, and usually it seems that the people that study one side compromise on the other. So, I think there's a lot of reluctance for, for those those reasons. And then uh, somewhere in the last part of the last century, uh, there was a good, good bit of uh, criticism about Christian psychology. Hmm. Uh, again, for much of the same reasons. It took a pretty secular model and, uh, you know, applied it to uh, Christian life. And something about that just seemed to come up a little short in people's minds. So. Uh, I think that's, uh, you know, when was the f last time you really heard the brain mentioned in church, you know? Right. <laughs> well, it's one of the things that's been funny on the show because Brian will often refer to me as the brain science guy on the show, which uh -huh. is uh, not totally accurate because I don't actually know what I'm talking about. I'm just endlessly curious in it. Like, I'm really fascinated by brain science and the way that that integrates into what it means to be a Christ follower in the world. One of the things that I know you've been talking about and writing about is this, this notion of enemy mode and how the brain right. goes in and out of enemy mode and, you know, following the debate last night and in this election season and this very strange year, talk to me a little <laughs> bit more about, about that particular idea. Yeah. That's um, one of those really complicated ideas. that has got sort of a basic, simple process to it. And that is, um, stuff comes into your brain at the brain stem in the back and the bottom. Mm -hmm. And then the brain kind of moves it around uh, from the back all the way forward, uh, which is actually the top of your brain right above your eyes, something like that. And as it moves it through, it processes it, right? Uh, or it stops along the way. Every once in a while, it gets stuck. So when uh, the our information gets all the way through the what your brain wants to do with it is act like me and my people, whatever kind of person I am. How do I actually respond to this current situation? But if it gets blocked along the way, we act in less human kinds of ways. So if it doesn't quite make it all the way to the front, which is the prefrontal cortex, 
we end up acting kind of stupid, um, <laughs> insensitive, let's just say. Um, yeah, it gets a little bit lower down, we act stupid. But the first, kind of the front of our brain is off. We're just sort of asleep, insensitive. We're not reacting to other people. If it gets blocked a little earlier, then we tend to blow up and do, I guess, what they call cur currently going Karen on somebody, you know, mm -hmm. just go off on them. <laughs> Right. Uh, and say some dumb things that later we regret doing. But if it gets blocked right at the start, uh, we actually, oddly enough, get into kind of a sinister sort of um, uh, intelligent predator mode where we not uh, not only feel like the other person is our enemy, but we're out to get them. We're going to calculate a way to take them down, make sure that whatever they're trying to do isn't going to succeed. So. Hmm. We'll, we'll try to block them. And in a sense, we quit caring about how much it hurts. So that's kind of the compassion session section down there. We just, you know, if it hurts you, I don't care. I, in fact, it might be to my advantage. Hmm. So those are kind of the three levels that we see pretty classically um, throughout, you know, just turn on the news or walk around the house. So, I, and again, I uh, please correct me if I'm wrong here. I, I was just doing a staff training a couple of weeks ago and I was, I was talking a little bit about this, how what I think happens, we, we take in information that has to travel through our limbic system first before it actually gets to like what you're talking about, the rational brain. So am I right in presuming that most of us have an emotional reaction to something before we have a rational reaction to something? Oh, yes, absolutely. That's the sequence it goes through, uh, going through the emotional brain quite before it goes to the analytical brain. Hmm. Which I feel like we're and, seeing a lot of, right? I, you hop on Facebook, like you said, there's a lot of people having what appear to be emotional reactions first. I'd love to know what coaching do you give to people? How do we get better at not letting that happen? Well, it's certainly the first thing you want to do is start observing it because the, the hardest thing to correct is somebody that doesn't notice what they're doing. Right. Um, and so the, the problem I think for most people is that, um, you know, you, you get stuck on being right and somehow in the middle of being either being right or trying to win, you stop observing the effect you're having on other people, which actually doesn't usually help us win or be right. Hmm. But ob observing is the first thing. If you want to really get good at it, give the people around you the, the, uh, permission to tell you when they think you are uh, getting into enemy mode. Uh, hmm. They'll know it. Uh, if, if you ask them, they'll tell you that and you can start noticing it. But then the next thing after that is you have to quiet yourself down, you know, just calm yourself a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, then the third thing is I suggest people get connected with Jesus at that point, calm down, connect with Jesus and say, how do you want me to see and respond in this situation. I think that's the part that we usually leave out. That's a really great point too, because I find that, and maybe we'll ask this in the second segment, because if part of what you're talking about requires an observation of the other person, but mm -hmm. so many of us are caught now in this predominantly digital space, I imagine our capacity or ability to like observe how our words are affecting someone else is probably diminished. And I, I, I wonder if you see that, do you see a, a diminished capacity to like really read the body language of other people? Because so much of what we do now is behind screens. 
yeah, I get constant complaints about that. It's uh, even when people are trying to, it's harder to do uh, just to pick up the cues. They're delayed. Um, you know, it's it's just a really frustrating media to work through. Yeah. Uh, and usually, um, you know, the, the sense of compassion that I really care about you, which we show on our face and in our voice, it it's, doesn't get conveyed as easily this way either. So it's easier right. to get into some kind of a conflict. Well, that's a great segue because I want to ask you more about that coming up next because I know that a lot of people right now in particular are really wrestling with how do I love others well especially people that maybe I would consider, you know, my enemy. So that's coming up next with Dr. Jim Wilder here on The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins. Brian Fromm is normally also here, but he's out for today. He'll be back on Monday along with me, 4 to 6 p.m. every weekday. But we have in his place a number of just really wonderful, brilliant, special guests. And uh, Dr. Jim Wilder is a return guest, a neurotheologian, an author, and someone who, in, at least in my experience, is writing about the kinds of things that I just don't see a lot of people writing about. So, Dr. Wilder, I'd love for you to just take a second to let people know what your books are, websites they can go to, maybe social media or email addresses or any of that, because I want people to, to know how to actually learn more about you when we're done here. Well, thank you, Ian. Probably the easiest place to find me is at lifemodelworks.org, uh, which is the model behind all of these different things we're talking about. And probably three books that people could be interested in is one renovated on uh, the church that transforms Dallas Willard, God, to talk about introduction to neurotheology there. Um, there's the other half of church that I've co-written with uh, Michael Hendricks, and then uh, Rare Leadership with Dr. Marcus Warner. Uh, we're talking about, uh, you know, how the brain relates to both church and uh, being a, a good leader. So those would be three that. good places to get involved. Yeah, and two of them came out this year. How in the world did you have time to be a part of two books that launched the same year? Uh, well, fortunately, my ministry basically has me set aside to do a lot of reading and, and uh, studying and networking. So uh, partly it's working with other people. So by co-authoring books, I sometimes get two or three out in the same year. <laughs> that's, that's the way to do it. Now, I want to go back to this conversation regarding neuroscience and formation. And what I what I find to be so interesting about your books is that I, I feel like you're answering questions that I, as a pastor, hear people ask all the time, but don't ever think to go to a neuroscientist to find the answers. Like, as a pastor, I'm regularly hearing people give some version of, why am I not growing in this area? Or why am I not getting better? Why does this still feel really disconnected? And I'd love to know how, how you would answer that, because I don't, I don't have a background in neuroscience. I'm interested in it. But why, why do you think that people often don't think to even consider the sciences when it comes to like their spiritual trajectory. Right. Well, the, the attempt to combine the two came start about the year 300 in the church with a bishop that was trying to study how the brain was related to personality because uh, part of his understanding of uh, Jesus actually being God in human form was that somehow that meant that Jesus made his human body and brain run the way they were supposed to. So the study has been 
going on for some time, but the models of being human that the church has used for most of its existence came out of Greek philosophy that actually is older than uh, than Jesus' birth, you know, going back into those, those days. And uh, so theology has been using this very antiquated model of how the human being operates and very reluctant to pick up any of the modern models because they, you know, in many ways know better. Hmm. So uh, even psychology and most of the sciences until the 1990s had no idea how the brain worked. Hmm. So even in psychology, you went to people like Freud and Rogers and like that come up with a theory because we didn't really know how the brain worked. So, uh, you know, the funny thing is, Nobody's been able to talk about the brain at all until very, very recently when we were able to study brains that were still alive by the, you know, mm. having these, you know, brain scans. Because up until then, you could only study them after they were dead. So right, how much right. can you learn that way? Right. <laughs> how, how much of the brain do we still just not know anything about? Well, uh, the interesting thing is we know something about almost all of it. Mm. But... Uh, the funny thing about the brain is that it will do multiple things in the same spot. So people tend to say, oh, I found the spot where it does this. And then uh, like here's, for example, attachment was being studied by one group of scientists. How do you attach to your mother and become human? Hmm. Okay, here's the part of the brain that does it. Then another group of scientists were studying addictions. How do you get addictions to work? And turns out it's the same part of the brain. Mm, wow. Uh, addiction is sort of like forming an attachment to a substance, but it took decades for those two things to be put together. So uh, most of what the brain does, we're probably haven't figured out yet, but we know something about most of it. Wow. That's fascinating to me. I, I remember years ago hearing a pastor talk about when Jesus, and I think it's particularly in Luke's gospel, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he referenced back to the Shema in Deuteronomy 6. And at least in our English translation, the Shema did not include the mind. And he was, he was, it was sort of a sub point, but he's like, Jesus cares about our mind though. And what he said was, Jesus also seems to think that our mind is one of the ways that we love God. Like we tend to think of love in this really nebulous sort of ethereal, like, oh, I fall in love, or it's just sort of like this sense or this aura. He's like, no, no, how we use our brains is actually one of the vehicles by which we love God and love others. D- does that does that sound right to you? Do you, do you agree with that? I Yes, I certainly do. Uh, part of the problem is that Greek doesn't, you know, has this additional word for mind that the Hebrews didn't use because they use more understanding hmm. kind of a concept. And so, I think the, in this case, Jesus is saying, yeah, even what you Greeks mean by the mind, we need to include in how you love God. But the it, the human identity is formed around attachment. Attachment is who do we love? Ultimately, at a brain level, we're changed more by who we love than what we believe. Mm. But conscious thought, which is way, way, way down the pike in, as far as brain operations is concerned, mm-hmm is what we can actually observe. So since that's the only part we can really look at very well, these other, you know, things that happen faster than conscious thought uh, have sort of eluded people's attention for a long time, except that we notice that 
very often how we love and who we fall in love with and how that affects us is, you know, more powerful than our rational thoughts. It's like, it's not really a good idea, but we fall for it anyway when we have this loving attachment. Right. Uh, and that's because it's deeper in the brain. And I think that's what, that's a part that Jesus wants to make sure that we include that even this loving th- attaching and thinking all need to be focused on God. Wow. That's so good. I, I know that we only have about a minute or so left, but uh, heading into this election and we know that it's just been the most wild year, maybe any of us have ever experienced. I would love for you to take just a chance to, to give people one or two practical things. You talked about enemy love in the first segment there, what's maybe one or two things. And I would encourage people just go buy the books. I don't want you to give away the whole book, but um, what's one or two things that maybe you would encourage people to really do or consider or practice particularly right now between now and the election, but probably, you know, well beyond that too. Well, yeah, there's no, no risk of giving away the book in a minute here, but uh, (laughs) the, the first thing is that we notice we've stopped listening and we stop being curious about what's going on in the other person's mind when we're starting to drop into enemy mode. Hmm. And so the, you know, it's really hard to be curious about your enemy, but it's much easier to be curious about what Jesus sees in them. So, you know, Jesus, what do you see in them? How do you want me to pray for them? How do you want me to think about them? Uh, you know, obviously Jesus cares about them and, and sometimes it mystifies us. But if we go to him and say, I want to I want to be at least as interested in them as you are, our brain, even in enemy mode, can connect with Jesus if we have a good connection and use his eyes to see other people. Um, and so that's the path, I would say. When you notice you've lost your curiosity, hmm. be curious about how Jesus thinks about it and then just be thankful this is what we need to be thankful that God is with us in this process. Uh, that thankfulness really opens our mind to him. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, as bad as these days may be, none of us would rather go through it without God, right? Right, right. So we can always be thankful for that. Gosh, that is such such a good way to end the show. I cannot encourage you all enough to go to lifemodelworks.org. That is Dr. Jim Wilder. Buy all his books. Listen to everything that he's ever said or written Dr. Wilder, thank you again for uh, joining us yet again on The Common Good. I really, really appreciate it. Really enjoyed it. Thanks, Ian. It's my pleasure. And you, my friends, have been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.